Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. I have the real distinct pleasure and honor of being in conversation today with someone who needs absolutely no introduction whatsoever, former Israeli ambassador to the United States, former member of Knesset, a professor, a prolific author, Michael Oren, ambassador Michael Oren. Uh, Michael, first of all, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. And um, Michael, uh, I, I could read about your biography forever, but... Uh, you, Why don't you just uh, do that and I'll just sit here. There you go. That sounds like a great idea. But I mean, a number of... Wasn't for me to pass the afternoon. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Uh, a, a book that is the first book, um, that, uh, the first book that became a, an international phenomenon, uh, Six Days of War. I'm just looking up because I see it on my shelf right over here. Uh, Six Days of War, which is still the authoritative. Uh, book on what happened in before and during this the, the, the Six Day War, uh, a book called Power, Faith, and Fantasy, which is also an extraordinary book, also a New York Times bestseller about America's involvement in the Middle East from way back when till at that point the, the modern times. Um, Ally, a story of his uh, time as ambassador to the United States, uh, which got. Very good reviews and some very, very controversial reviews. But Brett Stevens, for example, when he was writing for the Wall Street Journal, called it the smartest and juiciest diplomatic memoir that I've read in years. Uh, Michael, you may also recall that I also gave it a good review. Yeah, not just you gave it a good review. The only, you're the only person, Danny, who understood the title. Ah, in other words, the double entendre of the title. Well, that, that the title was, was potentially ironic. Right, like with allies like that who needs not And you understood that. You were the only one. Well, okay. I, you know, I, my I mom thought everyone get it. It's like it's almost like I, maybe I should have put a question mark after it, but I you, you didn't. Right, uh, that would have been that would have been too juicy. Anyway, Michael's also written lots of fiction, two 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 collections of uh, of short stories, two novels, and I'm just going to mention his next upcoming novel called Swan's War, uh, which is not out yet, but I'm told by an authoritative source, Michael Oren, um, that the book is actually his first book about non-Jewish things altogether. And uh, we're not going to see any more than that other than it's great and it's coming out soon. And um, maybe it'll become a Netflix series. We shall see. Right. So wishing you lots of luck with that. Uh, again, Michael needs absolutely no introduction. And Michael, I've been thinking about asking you to be on this, on this podcast for a very long time uh, because for a book that um, I'm actually finishing up now uh, called Impossible Takes Longer, mm -hmm. which is a kind of an assessment of Israel as it closes in on 75 years looking at lots of people who were reading and assessing Israel and so forth. And then, of course, one could not miss uh, your 2048 manifesto, which I thought was really a brilliant assessment of Israel, both its tremendous potential and its accomplishments, also the things that have been shortcomings and the ways in which Israel needs to be very careful in the future if it's going to 
guide itself in the right direction. And I would like at a certain point, uh, we'll probably mention 2048 a little bit today, the manifesto, um, to have another section, another session with you just about that. But the reason I reached out to you this week uh, is because of a, just a, an unbelievably compelling piece that you just wrote in Tablet Magazine. I mean, just being a couple months ago, April 19th, it came out in Tablet called Talking About My Generation, Reflecting Upon the Difficult Years as Early Immigrants to Israel and the Legacy Those Olim Left Behind. So first of all, um, you really are a kind of a, an immigrant to Israel, more or less a generation before me-ish. Uh, and I think in terms of immigration generations, you are an immigration generation before me. And um, you, you, you wrote so compellingly about your own experience and your generation's experience and what you think motivated people to come, what you think your long-lasting contribution to Israel is. And then it also reminded me, of course, we don't talk about Aliyah anymore. We talk about a lot of things when it comes to Israel, but the word Aliyah, you could be in a lot of conversations in America or even in Israel about Israel, and the word Aliyah is not going to come up. And here's Michael Oren um, writing about Aliyah. So I thought, wow, we should talk to Michael Oren, and we should talk about his piece, and we should talk about Aliyah. So let's start with the generation that you're part of, the generation that you wrote about. Tell us about it. Why did people come? What did they find? What did they contribute Tell us the story of that generation of American Olim or other Olim. That th well, sort of thank you, Danny. It's delightful to be with you. And thank you for that you know, non-introduction that went on for about 10 minutes. It's great. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. Our generation, you know, we came out of a particular soup, a historical soup. What was the soup? This was the post-Holocaust generation. We grew up in the shadow of the, of, of the Holocaust. A deep sense that our parents' generation, even though some of our parents had fought in World War II, my own father landed on Normandy Beach. I had not done enough uh, to save European Jewry. Sort of a collective sense of guilt. It's interesting. It was the Six-Day War, Danny, that gave American Jews the strength and courage to speak about the Holocaust. It's no accident that Holocaust studies grow up in the, in the aftermath of the Six-Day War. We used to whisper about the Holocaust. I never forget seeing at 15 years old, Eli Wiesel, on the stage of my JCC. And I'm saying, my God, there's a man on the stage talking about the Holocaust. How could that be? And it's hard to imagine today. It's hard to imagine today, three million Jews living behind the behind the Iron Curtain, who didn't have the right to speak Hebrew, to study Hebrew, to study Jewish text, uh, to immigrate to Israel. Uh, in a sense, prisoners, prisoners of Zion. That's hard to imagine today, and that's what we. By, by the way, the Six Day War also ignited their fervor about getting out of the Soviet Union. It contributed a tremendous, tremendous amount. Tremendously. By, by the same token, there's the Six-Day War. What we remember about the Six-Day War was not necessarily the Great Victory, but the three weeks preceding the Six-Day War. What's called in Hebrew the, the Hamtana, the waiting period, where we were convinced that certainly my parents would witness uh, the second Holocaust in one generation. And nobody was going to do anything. The United States wasn't going to do anything. Even American Jews weren't going to go and do anything. They were, they were not protesting you know, for Israel. They were protesting against their own government for the most part. Um, it was also a generation of great activism. And, and indeed, in one week, you could protest, you know, for Soviet Jewry and against uh, the Vietnam War. We were uh, a generation of Jewish fermentation, uh, of towering figures um, in all different directions, whether it be America Hanna uh, with radical, you know, violence, um, or uh, Shlomo Kalibach with love and peace. Um, interesting religious leaders, both in the reform and conservative movements. Um, and in an orthodoxy, uh, these were towering figures, you know, the generation of Soloveitchik, um, of the Havara movement in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the conservative movement. There were in tremendous you know, fermentation energy. There was an effervescence, a Jewish effervescence going along. 
Um, I think there was also a sense of the, the beginning to acknowledge that uh, that our own Jewish lives were kind of vapid and were lacking a strong spiritual connection, a tie. Certainly, that's the way we felt in, in the conservative movement, coming empty. I think that um, this generation, we had the sense that, that we had responsibilities and that we had to live up to those responsibilities. And, um, and there's also a sense that Israel, um, Israel needed us um, in the way that maybe you wouldn't need us today. Israel, we talk about Israel being isolated at some times. Israel is, is, is profoundly not isolated today. Um, Israel back then, not only was there no peace with Egypt and Jordan and certainly no peace with the Abraham Accord countries, uh, Israel did not have relations with China. China was a hostile country. India was a hostile country. Uh, the Indians wouldn't let our badminton team <laughs> play in India. Our chess team couldn't. Well, the reason the reason that Israel had to ask American Jewish students to go visit Soviet Jews was because Israelis couldn't get into Russia. They couldn't get into Russia. That was half of humanity right there, just India and China. Right. Then there was the Soviet right. bloc countries, which were 12 right. countries. Right. After the 1974 oil embargo, 24 out of 25 African countries cut off ties with us. We had a scant relations with uh, Latin America. We had a friendly relationship with the United States. We did not have a strategic alliance with the United States. You want to talk about isolation. There was the Arab boycott. And uh, so talk about a country that, that was, was found. There was a sense that Israel needed us. Israel was embattled um, and endangered um, and, and you know, sort of gave us a sense that, that you know, we were definitely needed in this country. Um, and so American Jews came. American Jews came in the and certainly in the wake of the Yom Kippur War in 1973. And the, what was the count? What was the country that we encountered? We encountered a country that was uh, lower middle class, had almost no, had very few uh, social divisions. Uh, everybody earned pretty much nothing. Used to take three months. Used to take three years to get a telephone. Yeah, my parents, we, we made Aliyah in 1969. The first time around, I'm like a serial ole. But the first time I made Aliyah, so to speak, we came in 1969. My father was told two years for a phone. So I guess it was a good week. And my parents were fit to be tied. I mean, there was no other way to be in touch. We used to write air letters to our families and they would take weeks to get there. And then one day, remember the Rosenbaum family was above us. And one day we'd only been there a couple of months and there's a knock at our door and it's a telephone guy. And um, he says to my mother, I was, you know, 10 or whatever it was. Um, he says to my mother, where's Rosenbaum? So my mother was like, how the hell should I know where Rosenbaum is? They're not home, I guess. So the guy goes, well, I'm supposed to put his telephone in their apartment. Right. So my mother says, well, give it to us. So he did. <laughs> in the other days, if you didn't have a telephone, you went with a large bag of these metal tokens called a simoni. And you went to a pay phone and you dialed 118 1,500 times to get the international operator. And you could talk for about five minutes once a month with your parents. Uh, and it would cost about $100. $100. Big Chunky Rico went to that five-minute phone call. Um and there was no food. Even the falafel was bad. And there were no, there were no restaurants. I mean, you think there's no restaurants. No restaurants. You didn't go out. There was no nightclubs. Um, there was television for about two or three hours a night on one channel. Um, when Hawaii Five O came on, uh, the streets were empty. And, um, and the kibbutz movement was a serious movement, still a powerhouse in this country. And uh, the, uh, the Mizrahim, the Sfaldim, were still very much, you know, downtrodden it's before Begin's victory uh, in 1977 and uh, a very very different country very poor country um, the expectation of, of New Orleans that they would go in the army and if you were 30 your 30s you were going in the army 
Um, and there were a handful of what was known as lone soldiers. Today, there are 8,500 lone soldiers here. I'm, I'm very much involved with lone soldiers in this country today. Um, and there, there were no benefits. I came with a lot of friends from, from the United States, some of whom you know, who went into Israeli public life. And, um, and we took care of one another. We just did, because uh, we were the family that we had. Um, but very- What percentage of them would you guess ultimately stayed? I, I've heard different estimates uh, from you know, 75 to maybe 75% did not stay. Okay. I heard between 15 and 30% stayed. So the people who stayed were, were either uh, hardy and or crazy. And, um, and we would live through you know, the first Lebanon war, the second Lebanon war, the Intifada, which was extremely difficult, the economic upheavals of the 80s, the, the Gulf War. Um, what didn't we live through? How many wars with Gaza? How many wars, uh, how many upheavals did we live through? Uh, and then our kids went into the army. But, and in my cases, my kids all fought in wars. I had one son who was injured in the war. Um, you know, we went through an awful lot. I ended up spending about 35 years in the military and uh, all together with, with Miluim. Um, and what do you think the, the overwhelming contribution of your generation of Olim, we'll come to the other generations in a minute, but when you look back, I mean, and there were some pretty extraordinary people, yourself obviously prominent among them, who came to this country, and some people that, were not, that are not prominent, they just came and they, they worked and they're still here and they're on Kibbutzim or Moshavim or whatever, but when you look at it as a group, what's the contribution of that group of Olim to this country? Well, we were the we were the most unusual Olim, all right, because the, the 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 Zionist model, the paradigm is that people make aliyah to this country because they're poor and oppressed, and uh, and and they're looking for refuge. Now, we experienced anti-Semitism in the United States. Um, there's no question. I experienced anti-Semitism growing up. I grew up in a non-Jewish area. I was you know beaten up and, and called off for different names, and I experienced all anti-Semitism throughout my 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 high school years, my college years. Uh, I played sports. If you're playing sports in the university, you're being called all sorts of names. Um, and there was always a sense that we were we were we were Americans, but with a big asterisk over the Americans. Okay, we're American Jews. We're hyphenated. Um, we were the last generation, I believe, Danny, that of Jews in the United States who were a, a distinct ethnicity. Right? I, in your books, you write about how American Jews think of themselves as a religious group to, today, but back then we weren't a religious group. We were an ethnicity. Uh, I'm actually reading Bernard Malibut now, books written, written in the 50s. And it, these Jews are deracinated Jews. They have no religion, but they are an ethnicity. We were the only, we were the only people who actually ate bagels back then, and they were horrible. Um, right, that's also Saul Bellow and Philip Roth, all of those. All, and they're all asking the same question. How can I be an American and a Jew at the same time? Um, American Jews today, even Orthodox American Jews, Haredi American Jews, don't ask, don't they not ask that, ask that question. They don't even understand the question. Right. One, ironically, one of the things that Haredi Jews and Reform Jews have in common is that they don't struggle with the question of how to be a Jew in America today. It's perfectly clear to the Kiryas Yoel people, and it's perfectly clear to the Brooklyn people. The irony of it was that, you know, in America, we were Jews and we were not accepted by the Anglo-Saxons, Saxons, right, who wouldn't let us into their universities or quota systems. They wouldn't let us, you know, there were no Jews on sitcoms. There were no Jewish astronauts. You know, it's hard to imagine today. Um and then we get off the plane in Israel and we become Anglo-Saxon. So in, in the United States, we were a Jewish ethnic group. And in, in Israel, we were the American ethnic group. 
<laughs> and we never escaped ethnicity. At least my generation didn't escape ethnicity. And that was compounded by the fact that, you know, few people of my generation learned Hebrew uh, to a level where they could, you know, interview on television or certainly give a, a speech in Knesset while everyone's screaming at you. Um, and, and so that was rare. I and mean, the Hebrew was an important key to, to integration. But with that, our American ethnicity, our American ethos, our American worldview, uh, I think had profound impact on many aspects of Israeli society. First of all, we brought our religious forms with us. We brought Reformed Judaism. We brought conservative. We brought American orthodoxy with us. Um, right. I was just saying, Michael, you also brought American feminism with you. We brought, we brought so many things. We brought American activism with you. If you look at any uh, Israeli you know, political movement, left, right, up, or down, Americans are disproportionately represented. Disproportionately represented. And, and uh, we brought that activism. We brought uh, commitment to democracy which I think, uh, I think reverberates to this day because democracy is always challenged in this country and an understanding of democracy because most of the, we're the, one of the only groups in Israel who came with a deep democratic tradition. Uh, most of the Jews in this country either came from the Middle East or from Eastern Europe and didn't have that tradition. So um, I think our, our contributions also in the arts were just uh, out of our proportion to, to our, you know, our actual numbers in the population. Um, so immense. I think that we were, yeah, we, to a certain degree, maybe not to the degree that the Russians were, but we were transformative. Now let's fast forward 20 years to yeah. approximately the time that I come. We came at the, just right before, right before the second Intifada, more or less, a couple years before the Intifada. Also, it was a, a wave of us. Um, we came from a very different America. Mm -hmm. uh, we were, I think, at that point, much more comfortable in America already. I don't think the Jewish-American thing was as troubling to us. Although you and I are more or less the same age. You're just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit older than me. You're um, more great. But by that time, 20 years later, it had changed. The, the guilt over the Holocaust was not was not mm -hmm. the same. And I also remember, by the way, the Six-Day War. I remember, you know, we were one of those families, like on Black and White TV, Leave it to Beaver, or my three sons. We're all three, we were three boys, and we all sat at the same place at the dinner table every night. And my father would always come home from the office for, for dinner. Uh, and we would always watch Walter Cronkite on the black and white TV. And then I remember one week when I was, you know, eight or nine, eight years old. Yeah, eight years old. Um, yeah, eight years old. My parents all of a sudden are not sitting at the table. Walter Cronkite is yap, yap, yapping about something. I don't really understand that. My mother serves us whatever she serves us. And my mom and dad are pacing across the room. And I remember, and it happened the next night also, they didn't eat. And I said to them, well, aren't you going to eat? It was so weird. And I remember to this day, my mom sort of snapped at me and she said, we're not hungry. And of course, I would come to understand later that it was the Six Day War and they, you know, they just couldn't eat. And then a year later, we made Aliyah. Um, mm. So it was obviously, or we had a, a, a pre-trip and then in 69, we made Aliyah. But yeah, so we all grew up that way. But by the time... My wife and I came with our three kids. This was a very different country. Uh, this was a country where there were cell phones and you didn't need a Simonim to go and spend the $100. And soon after that, not immediately, but soon after that, then you could call over the internet. And you know, I remember the first time that I was like riding my bike out in the Jerusalem forest, talking to my brother who was riding in Central Park. And we're both on our bikes and we're both on our cell phones. I thought, this is crazy. I mean, nowadays that's nothing, but uh, it's just crazy. But you look at the and people you, that came- had central heating, which was an amazing thing. In the also, 70s, there was no central heating. You had to go to a gas station with two jerry cans and fill them up with kerosene and bring them. No, we came to a totally different country. We came to a totally Wait. different country, and you know that the healthcare was different. The the amount the, the, nobody imported toilet paper anymore like they used to in the in the 60s <laughs> and the 70s. You know, no, seriously, you can get Cheerios, right? Right, tuna fish. 
But I want to ask you about my generation. I mean, you watched all this happen. The people that came, you know, around the Intifada, shortly before the Intifada, those of us who have been here now between 20 and 25 years who came to a different country than you did. Do you have a sense of what the contribution of that generation was? Was it similar? Was it different? Was the fact that they left a different America impactful on what they brought to Israel? What's your sense? I think they built on the previous generation's accomplishments, whether it be in the religious field, the academic field, the political field. Um, I'm trying to think, I'm stretching my, I'm thinking about the people in Knesset I knew who, who came from, say, North America, um, who were part of your generation. Here, there, I'm thinking, I mean, my generation would be some of the, the Moshe Aaron's people who came even before right. me. Right, Um I think it, you, you came to a country that was in transformation, transformation from being that lower middle class, largely agrarian society to being a highly you know, socially and economically stratified, but um, technologically robust country uh, that was emerging from isolation in so many different ways. The Arab boycott was behind us. Um, well, you could travel to China, you could travel to India. Everyone traveled to India. Who didn't travel to India, right, after the army? It's just, just if you had peace with Jordan, peace with Egypt, you had a very different relation. You had a strategic alliance with the United States. You know, Africa wasn't quite back yet. Right. But, uh, that took a little while. And that took, actually took place in the last couple of years. Uh, South America took place in the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, in, in Israel, that is merging into something that looks uh, more or less what look, Israel looks like today. For, for, right. for good and for bad, okay, Israel has a social gap, which is, which is up there with the United States, Mexico, and Chile and a million children beneath the poverty line. Uh, so that that was not the case um, when I made Aliyah in, in the 70s. So um, that that's a big thing. The question is, you know, the, today I'm looking at, uh, I'm dealing with Olim who come to this country. Some want to come, just want to be in the army and go home. And uh, when they come today, there's an expectation of getting a job in high tech, of having a certain um, level. There's actually an interesting phenomenon, Danny, because you're in Jerusalem, but in Tel Aviv, there's this, there's this notion of Aliyah to Tel Aviv. And there are thousands of young people in this country, in this city, who have made Aliyah not out of a deep sense of commitment to Jewish history or identity, uh, but because of a lifestyle choice. Tel Aviv has great food, great beaches, great nightlife. Uh, it's got high tech and the salaries aren't all that different than the high tech salaries in the United States. So why not live here? If you're well, why live here, though? I mean, if you're, if you're going to do high tech, if you're going to do high tech in the United States, they also have great food and some great beaches and, and great whatever. In other words, I think you're right that they're not giving up a lot by moving from New York or San Francisco or wherever to Tel Aviv. But why are they coming? They're not making more money here. It's fun. It, 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 there's a better nightlife here. I was just saying before, if you're a young woman here, there's almost you know, no violent crime. Walk around at night. Um, That's and I mean, what's going on in American cities, you have to tell you, San Francisco in particular. San Francisco in particular. You're not walking around as a young woman at night alone in San Francisco now. So it's, it, they're just, it, it's a lifestyle choice. And there's some interesting organizations, NGOs that are operating, doing a key roof here, trying to get people who have made Aliyah to, to Tel Aviv, you know, bringing them into Judaism and reminding them, hey, this is not just a, a fun and surf and high-tech capital. There's other things going on here as well. Um, interesting NGOs. Our biggest challenge in the future is not going to be with the Olim. It's going to be Israel's relationship with Olim. Meaning what? No, we had our challenges because we because we came from such a high socioeconomic economic background, and because we weren't chased out of the United States, uh, we were the only we the Anglo-Saxon were the only group of Olim that were greeted with skepticism and sometimes contempt by Israelis. It was the craziest thing. They'd say, "If you weren't going to make Aliyah, they say, well, why don't you live here? But if you do make Aliyah, they say, "Ma, you what? Are you crazy? 
There had to be something wrong with you that you left with them. You left the United States to come here. Today, nobody says that. No one, no one says you're crazy for leaving America now. It's great. But the big problem today is that a large segment of this population, and there hasn't been statistics on this, hasn't been research, no longer faces, no longer faces, favors mass aliyah. In other words, there are Israelis who no longer favor mass aliyah. There are a great number of Israelis who no longer face, favor mass aliyah, so much so. They don't longer favor mass aliyah from where? Eastern from Europe? Anywhere. anywhere. Why? And I'll tell you why. And I, I'm, I'm speaking this because I was in government and I was working with the French aliyah. And we had a historic opportunity with the, with the sharp rise of anti-Semitism uh, in France to encourage French aliyah. Uh, and in fact, the majority of the French Jews who left France did not come here. They went to England. They went to Canada. Uh, they went to every place but here um, because Israel was, frankly, to them, unwelcoming. And I know that from inside. There was nobody in the Israeli government. You're talking about a right wing government that was um, was going to stand up and defend French French Aliyah. Why? Because politically it's ex- inexpedient. What does that mean? What it means is Israelis will say to you, and I hear this again and again, and behind not no, not used to be behind closed doors, but now even not it's not even behind closed doors now anymore. Uh, there are too many Jews here as it is. It's too crowded. You can't you can't drive on the highways. The housing prices get shot up by, by having you know people more people demanding houses. They take our jobs. They come here expecting things, and I'm what I got to pay my taxes for some wealthy Jew from Paris. You know I got to give him you know benefits. Who needs so that's obviously the attitude to American Aliyah also, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's my point. And so we're in this unique situation where, you know, Israel today is on one hand, the largest Jewish community uh, in the world. We're secure. We're strong. Um, we're for many ways affluent. Our, our national GDP is now recently now rivaling Germany's. And we long time, long time ago, we passed Japan and Italy, um, you know, in, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of water in terms of medical services places in a, in a category by itself really i mean there are very few countries in the world where you can drink the water out of the tap and our water is actually right. better than comes out than anything comes out of a bottle it's amazing right. and the medical services are extraordinary and right at this moment when living in israel is increasingly attractive when anti-semitism is on the rise and i don't know what you think about it but i don't see any way it's going to decrease in the coming years in the united states or, or practically anywhere Right. It's certainly not on American campuses. That is not changing anytime in the near future. And, you know, people I knew who were sitting on the fence are no longer sitting on the fence in the United States about making Aliyah. And people who never in their lives considered sitting on the fence are now sitting on the fence. Now, the people um, that were sitting on the fence and are no longer sitting on the fence have decided to come? Have decided to come. But there were people who never even considered sitting on the fence and are now sitting on the fence. They've decided to come, you're saying, at exactly the time that more and more Israelis don't want them. To don't come. want them. And, you know, I believe that one of the one of the uh, one of the responsibilities, I, I think the imperatives of, of Israeli governance is to reeducate the Israeli public about the the moral and educational and economic benefits of Aliyah. Because wow. nothing has been more transformative to this country than the Russian Aliyah. Uh, right. And. Um, and even now, you know, even now with the possibility, you, you, I don't know if you know this, um, that more refugees have come to Israel from Russia in the last three months than from the Ukraine. Hmm. And um, and they are, they're, they, you know, per capita, they're probably the most educated population in the world. Very, very talented. Um, and right now, sort of under the radar, uh, there was a lot of fanfare about, you know, about some of the initial waves, which were a couple of hundred people. But if tomorrow 
several hundred thousand Jews from Ukraine and the former Soviet Union, and that there are about 600 to 700,000 of them were to show up tomorrow, I don't think they'd right now be greeted very enthusiastically. That's fascinating. Yeah. There's no push among anybody that I hear. Do you, do you hear it differently about changing the law of return? No, there's not. I, I, have, I pushed in government for, for an immigration reform. We, have no immig- we actually have no immigration policy other than the law of return, and it's very difficult to remain competitive technologically if you can't import you know, certain technicians, certain programmers who know things that, that maybe Israelis don't know. Uh, you're limiting yourself. Um, and they've, they've made some progress on that. But we actually don't have a we don't have ref, we don't have immigration reform. This I don't see anything like that. I think that uh, the question is really a, a social and psychological one. Do we still want them? Do we still think it is an essential part of Israel, Israel's raison d'etre, our Zionist ethos to encourage and to welcome Aliyah? Well, I mean, you and I obviously both think yes, and not only because we're Olim, but because we understand that was part of the very fundamental ethos of, of Zionism early on. I mean, I was not at all aware that there is this sentiment out there. It's fascinating. But by way of beginning to wrap up, I mean, you know Israeli society inside out. You've been a member of Knesset. You're on TV all the time. You know everybody here. Uh, and you know American society inside out. And you know the relationship because you're an ambassador. So, I mean, there's really nobody better positioned to ask this question to what I mean, obviously, nobody has a crystal ball, but given given the trends in America uh, about Zy- about anti-Semitism, about violence, about an increasingly divided society, and again, you know, what everyone wants to think about the Bennett about the Bennett uh, coalition, the idea that you have a Naftali Bennett who was definitely right of center, sitting with Meretz and sitting with Labor and sitting with Mansour Abbas, whatever you think of the coalition, it's the kind of coalition that you could never get to work at all in a congressional committee in the United States. Never. I mean, never. Never. So given all of those trends, but given Israel's attitudes and the economics and all the different sides, what's your what's your crystal ball say about the future of American Aliyah? You know, though though I was a member of Knesset, I'm going to try to answer this, this question honestly. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it's this. And I, I want to answer not just honestly, but with, with humility. Um, the American Jewish community is, is subject to historical processes that in, in, in overwhelming majority of cases have nothing to do with the state of Israel. We didn't invent wokeism. We didn't invent uh, counter, you know, censor culture. We didn't invent intersectionality. Um, we didn't invent uh, critical race theory. Uh, and yet, you know, we are often on the receiving end of many of these ideas. Uh, and our ability to uh, counteract them is very, very limited, just limited from here. Uh, for a certain segment of, of very progressive American Jews, it's no longer about what Israel does, it's who we are. And if we're a, right. a white settler colonialist country, if, even if we do something good, it'll be, you know, be whitewashing you know, or, or, you know, pinkwashing, whatever washing. We're about to have the largest gay parade, you know, got pride parade in, in Asia outside my window, by the way. And that will be pinkwashing because everything right. Israel does that's good is inherently bad because we're inherently bad. Um, and so, you know, we could create a Palestinian state tomorrow on, on you know, on the 97 borders and redivide Jerusalem and rip up 400,000 settlers. Well, it's not going to make a big, not a big benefit difference uh, for these people. Um, so what's the impact of that, you think, on the prognosis for American Aliyah? Because, but here's I'm actually optimistic about the future of American Jewry. First of all, a, a city like New York has had a positive Jewish growth rate for the last seven or eight years. Now, overwhelmingly, that's because of orthodoxy and usually very orthodoxy um, and the Haredim. 
But um, in my dealings with the Jewish Agency, and I sit on a number of uh, committees in the Jewish Agency, I, I've been strongly recommending that we reach out as the Jewish Zionist state to the Haredim. I was, as ambassador, I was the first ambassador to meet with the Haredi leadership of the United States. And I know that you, know, you cannot generalize about the Haredim. They tell me they're the biggest Zionist going. Uh, but we have to reach out to them. We have to reach out to them in the way they can be registered. We should have a, we should have a Haredi birthright program. You know, they're not going to go drinking on Dizengoff Street on Saturday night. But I think there'd be a tremendous, tremendous uh, response to that. Um, so the American Jewish community in 20, 30 years from now will be, might be numerically smaller, but it'll be more Jewish and it'll be more cohesive and it'll be more attached to the state of Israel through one way or another. And we'll have probably higher levels of Olim. And we're seeing it right now, Danny. We're seeing every year the number of Olim from the United States goes up, not down. Now, part of it is owned to anti-Semitism. It is. And part of his own to, you know, the the technological miracle, miracle here in the great life in Tel Aviv. But the majority of people coming are not people in high tech, are not people flying, fleeing anti-Semitism. They're people who come here because they're Jewishly committed, you know, not necessarily Zionistly committed, but they're Jewishly committed. So I think this is a source for optimism. If we, if we know how to how to embrace these people and to talk their language. Uh, and that's going to be the huge challenge we face in the future. Well, that's actually fascinating and um, quite actually inspiring. Anyway, Michael, I want to I want to thank you. It's always challenging in the best intellectual sense of the word, and 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 fun to talk to you. I want to remind our listeners once again uh, that if they want to read your original piece in Tablet Magazine, it's called "Talking About My Generation," obviously by Michael Oren, and it came out obviously a quote from the Who, right? Right, exactly. Talking about my generation. I don't know how many young people will get the quote, but you know, one can only hope for a modicum of literary. I'm surprised uh, Pete Townsend didn't didn't sue the tablet magazine right so well it hasn't, it hasn't happened yet we'll see and then also from um, the new the information which we'll put on the on the uh on the piece that goes out with this about your new novel coming out swan's war we wish you a lot of success with the new novel thank you and we look forward to talking to you again soon and i look forward to seeing you in person thank you, thank you. you've been listening to israel from the inside go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.